Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. So when I was in my early 20s, um, we would we would try to get out west a lot. And I don't know if you've ever been out west, but um, we were to Yosemite, Zion National Park, Yosemite, uh, Bryce Canyon. We, we spent a lot of time out there, and we would go hiking. And, and what we would do is we would call back backcountry hiking. In other words, we had a pack. There was no trail. We had a map, a topographical map. We had a compass, and we're talking major mountains, and not just, this is not wooded area. It's not like down in the Smokies. This is sheer cliffs and rocks and, and all sorts of things. Just a beautiful country. And, and we would hike, and, and I don't know exactly where we were uh, in this particular case. I can't remember. I think it was, oh gosh, I don't even remember. I think it was in Bryce, uh, or maybe it was in Zion. And we hiked in the backcountry, and there was three or four of us, and, and we were hiking, and, and we had brought a rappelling rope. I don't know if any of you have ever rappelled before, but it's quite the thrill uh, to lean back and trust that rope and then push away from the wall and slide down, and, and you know, sometimes 100 or 150 feet down, and, and um, it's quite, quite the experience. Well, we would do it back here where it was very, um, very safe. We would tie off at a, out in Kettering. There was a tower, like a rock tower, and we could tie off at the top and then lean out there and, and be able to push back, and it was, it was not bad. Well, we were out west, and we would hiked, and, and we came to this place that, that there was this little trail. I had a picture of it, but it, it didn't really work on the screen very well, so I didn't show it to you, but this is really just sheer rock, and, and it, the, the rock is kind of coming down like this, and then it kind of drops. And it's, I don't know, it's 100 feet down. And, and there's this little, as, as the, it's tapering down, it flattens off for some weird, strange reason, about eight inches. And then it drops the rest away. And to get, we needed to go down. But the way to get down was to walk this little path for about 30 yards. And out there on this little eight-inch little piece of stone, there's a steel pin driven into the rock. And that's where we hooked our rope onto. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going. I'm <laughs> just not doing it. I have a friend of mine. His name was Tim Heeg at the time. I don't know where he's at now. I haven't spoke to him for 40 years. He was like a hermit crab. He got the rope, struck, just walked right out there, sat down, tied the rope on the, the pin, and threw the rope off the edge and said, come on. <laughs> My heart is, I'm like, this, I wasn't married yet, but this was the day I was going to die. And I, I mean, I just like, what am I going to do here? Now, obviously, pride is kicking in because I have a couple other friends that are walking out there now. They've got the guts to go out there. And so I have to decide, am I going to stay here? Am I going to turn back and go back to the camp? Am I going to be alone? Am I going to, you know. So I get the nerve up, and I, I walk out there. My legs are shaking. I'm like, that's not a good thing when you're walking on this little 8-inch piece of stone. And I walk all the way out there, and I sit down, and I hook myself to that pin. What a sigh of relief. I'm anchored to that pin. And then I was able to lean back and felt good. I was confident at that point. When I got to that pin and I was able to get hold of that pin and anchor myself to it with a rope, I felt good. I was able to push off. The the great part now was to push back, slide down. It was great. I felt really great when I got down to the bottom. It was all good. I felt good. See, here's the thing. Once I got anchored, I was all right. But when I was on my own, walking on that little piece of stone, that cutout, 
I was not okay. I knew that it was not a good place, that I could die, that if I slipped, it would be over. I would have not survived it. The writer of Hebrews here in chapter 10 is kind of showing them and teaching them here that they need to have a confidence in Christ to that level. He is the pin for me that was driven in to that ground. And that they've been walking on their own. And that they need something to anchor themselves to. And so for nine chapters, nine and a half chapters, what has he been doing? He's been building the case that they can have confidence in Christ. And that they need to hook their rope onto him. They need to let go of hundreds and hundreds of years of the sacrificial system because it's not doing anything for them. They're on their own. They need to let go. And they need to secure themselves to the great high priest who by his blood they will have eternity in the new covenant. Their sins will be forgiven, not just covered, but forgiven. And so what does that bring us to today? I want to put it this way in your big idea. Your big idea this morning is living for Christ requires confidence in Christ. Living for Christ, which is, I think, what the the whole text wants us to do. It's what the text is going to say today. I think that God wants us to live for him. It's for his glory we are to live. He's created us, Isaiah says, for his glory. We're to live for him. Many of the songs we just sang this morning, I give it all to you. For you, I'm living I'm, I'm your, every breath in my lungs is for you. Now, that's a challenge to us, especially in the Western world, because we are very much about ourselves. We are but very much about me and what I want and my life and my things, and, and that's a struggle. And, and so Scripture obviously comes and confronts that, that nature of ours, that, that fleshly nature. And so here what the writer is now trying to transition them from is he's saying, you've been there for all these hundreds of years. Now I want, to trans- I want you to cling on to Christ, not on to sacrifices, not on to great high priests, not on to animals, not anything. Don't put your trust in any of that. Put your trust in Jesus. And that's what he's working at. And so here, this idea that living for Christ is going to require a confidence. So for me to, to go out there to repel off of that rock, I had to have confidence in that pin. Now, why did I have confidence in that pin? Because, see, once I got there and I got latched to it, I was good. I had a boldness all of a sudden. I was able to lean back. And, and why? Well, I'll tell you that the reason I had confidence in that pin, because that pin had been there for years and years and years and years, and many, many people had repelled off that. And this rock was solid, and I knew it was driven way down into the rock. It was solid. I didn't worry didn't worry. See, that's kind of an analogy of our Christian walk. My question to you, are you lashed to that pin? Are you lashed to Jesus? Is that where your anchor is? Because I'll tell you, when the storms come and suffering comes and tragedy comes like it has come this week for many, that is what's going to determine how you weather that storm. Do you understand? Are you rooted in Scripture? Are you rooted in the truths of God? Do you have a confidence that is there? Because to live for Him requires that type of confidence, requires that type of of richness, of understanding of the text and what He has done. So today, as we look at these six verses, there's lots here. We're going to move pretty quickly 
We could spend weeks in these texts, but, but we're just going to move fairly quickly. We're going to look at first what the, in the first few verses, the, the writer here is going to do a summation. He's going to do the therefore again, right? Therefore, and he's really looking at maybe what he's just talked about here in chapter 10, maybe in chapter 9. But I could make the argument that really this therefore could also apply to the whole 10 chapters before this, or the whole 9 chapters before this. Because the whole thing is he's been building them up, explaining the, the, who Jesus is. He's, he's greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's the perfect high priest. He's sinless. He's, he's, he's went from the heavens and, and he's, he's interceding for us and all of those things. And now he gets to this place and he's, he's going to say, now therefore. So the first few verses, are he's going to sum up what's already been said by him over so many chapters. And then he's going to, based on that summation, he's going to exhort the readers. And that's you and me. It's not just the Jews here in this time. He's exhorting us. What does it mean to exhort? We're going to look at this a little bit more in detail. It means to encourage. And we'll talk more about that. It means to encourage. He's going to exhort. He's going to say, because of this, I'm going to tell you that you need to do this. And I think this is so appropriate in our walk as Christians. I think these, these three exhortations are just critical in our life. And I think we need to take great heed to them this morning as we see them in Scripture. Now, one of these exhortations then has a few caveats to it that we'll talk about. But let's, let's dive in. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, what he has just said in the previous chapter and really the previous nine chapters. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now, I've explained therefore, but this word brothers, I just want to share this. If you have a, an ESV, an English Standard Version, it's the translate brothers. I will tell you, if you have most other NIV, um, New King James, or even King James, many of it's brethren or brothers and sisters. And I, I point that out to say he's speaking here not just to men, not just to his brothers, his actual brothers, but he's speaking to men and women. He's speaking to a large, you know, the body, the brethren, the church. Therefore, brothers, since we have a confidence, right, since we have a confidence. Now notice he's, he's stating that as a fact. Now he's not in this mode of trying to in, in persuade them that we should have a confidence. He's done that for nine chapters. He's talked about that we need to have a confidence in chapters 3 and I think chapter 4. That, that we need to have this confidence. Now here in chapter 10 he's saying because we have this confidence. Because I have built this argument and, and this is who Christ is, and, and I've been showing you who he is, and, and his holiness, and his, his majesty. Because of that, we have a confidence. So he's, he's, now he's turned it to a fact, right? This idea of confidence, this is this idea of, of boldness. It's, it's, it's this idea that I can trust something boldly. Remember when I said I, my knees were shaking when I walked out on that path for that 20 yards or 30 yards? But when I got to that pin and I was able to connect, I had a, a confidence, a boldness to be able to lean out and to, to push away from the rock face and to be able to drop because of what I was secured to. And that's exactly what he's saying. He says you can have a boldness and a confidence because of who Christ is and what he's done for you, and what he's done for me. Now this idea that this confidence, how does this play out kind of in Scripture some? And we could go in lots of passages, and I had many passages, I've, I've just brought it down to one. The question is, does God want us to have a confidence in our salvation? Yes. Yes. And you say, well, but Raleigh, it says in, in Galatians that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, that's true. Because we should never be complacent. 
Because if we're, if we're sitting complacent and we're not living for him, if, if we're not examining our heart, if we're not denying, you know, hating our sin and confessing our sin, we should, not, we should have fear and trembling. But if we're doing those things, which is what he commands us to do, we should live with great confidence of our salvation. In fact, over and over, I think in Scripture, the Scripture and even Jesus himself says you should have a great confidence. And where do we see this? In just one place I'll bring it is 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. John here writes, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, I just want to clarify something. Who can have this confidence? Those who believe. And we're going to see how he further expounds this in these four or five verses. You can have this confidence for those who believe. And not just believe, but believe what? Believe in Christ Jesus, the Son, right? And all the work, I would argue, right? I write these things to you that you who believe in the name of the Lord, Son of God, that may, you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you may hope that you have eternal life. Not that you may wonder. Not that you may think you have a good shot at having eternal life. That you may know. If you believe, I'm writing this to you so that you will know. You will have a confidence and a boldness to know that you have eternal life. We can see many other passages as you read Scripture that clearly is there. And one of the things that saddens me is that many in the church, many people that I've talked to that have, are professing Christians, I will say, if you die today, what would happen to you? Oh, that's a good question. I'm like, yeah, it should be one that you should be able to answer. Um, well, I, I hope I would go to heaven. I said, Really? You don't, you don't have a confidence of that, and they don't. Now, that could be one of two things. One, they're not a believer. They've not been born again. That's, that's possible. And that's good that then they have that not understanding. It could be that they live in an apathetic life in their Christian walk. And, and I would say, well, they're, they're not having any security there because Scripture clearly says if you're living that way, God doesn't want us to have a security there. Even though we may be saved, he doesn't want us to, to live there and be okay. Or maybe they just don't under, maybe they love the Lord and I think many of them do, and, and I think they're born again, but they just don't understand Scripture well enough. They don't have enough understanding of all the pins that have been driven in the ground, and they don't know where to find them. They don't meditate on them. They don't read them. They don't, they don't pray over them. They don't, they don't praise God for them. They're not being encouraged by other people. I could go on and on and on. And, and, and what, I think what the author is trying to say is that, that you, need to, you need to know all this. He's speaking to people who intimately knew the Old Testament, intimately knew the, the tabernacle system, the sacrificial system. And I want to tell you as the church today, we need to intimately know the Scripture. We need to know it because it is where we find our encouragement. It is where we find our confidence. It is not in our works. It is not in our money. It is not in our church attendance. It is in the word of God. The promises of God is where we find it. And so since we have a confidence to do what? To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So now he's referring back to the tabernacle. So if you remember, there's a there's a kind of a fence all the way around the courtyard of the tabernacle. You enter in through the gate, through this opening, and then inside there where the, the altar is there and the, 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 the tables where the sacrifices are made, there is another tent, the tent of meeting. And, and there was inside that tent, that first tent, there was a room, and it was called the holy place. And it was where the candle opera was and where the showbread was and, and, and the incense was burning. And that's where the priest would go in and, and trim, the, trim the lights and trim the, the fire and, and do things and switch out the showbread and do all those things, keep the incense burning. But there was a curtain. And beyond that, 
It's called the, the holy of holies, the most holy place. Here he says, since we have to enter the holy place, since we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So now what he's saying, he says, look, we've not been able to go in there. Only the priest could go in to the first area, but only the high priest could go into the next area. Now he's telling them something that's radically different. He's saying, we have a confidence, not only can we go, we have a confidence that we can go in there. And we're going to look at a little bit more about that a little bit later. There's a confidence but what is the confidence in? Is it in our works? Is it in our good behavior that we've, we've got ourselves right before we can go in there? No. What is that caveat there? To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the blood. By the blood. You know, in, in our culture today, and even in the church, sadly, many churches have got away from preaching about the shed blood of Christ, the, the sacrificial system um, all of that. I don't, know, I don't know all the reasons for that. Uh, I think many of them think, no, nobody, nobody really wants to hear that there was a bunch of animals slaughtered and, and that Jesus is blood, and, and then he tells us that we have to drink his blood. And, and like, that, I'm not, that's that. Obviously, people don't want to hear that. Well, I'm telling you, the whole Christian faith, everything that God has did is based on the shed blood of Christ. And so when you take that away, you destroy Christianity. You destroy the atonement. You destroy it all. We have to keep going back to that. Yes, in fact, one of the things that I would encourage you is when you enter in into your, your prayer life or you enter into the, the sanctuary here and, and we come together, you should come in and one of the things that you should remember when you see the cross is the shed blood of Christ that he died for me. Th I mean, that is the thing that we should always go to right away. I want to take you back to Leviticus chapter 17. Here the, the sacrificial system was just getting underway. The tabernacle had been built. They'd been delivered out of Egypt They've been at the mountain, and God has told them to build the tabernacle. But here's what he says in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you. Now, I don't know necessarily. I'm, I'm not saying that that's a direct correlation to, that God is foreshadowing, that he's going to give us Christ in the blood, but I, I think it is. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you. He's given Christ for us. But specifically, he's talking about his blood. On the altar, so we know it's about the blood because he's put it on the altar. We see that in the ceremonial systems, on the horns of the altar. On the altar to make an atonement for your souls. So the blood is necessary for the atonement for your souls. No atonement, no blood, no saving souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. If we didn't get it the first time around, he comes back around to it. For it is the blood that makes the atonement by the life. So if you remove the blood, there is no atonement. Can't remove it. We should talk about it. We should preach. We should, we should teach it. We should help understand the sacrificial work of Christ required the shedding of his blood. Now, many of you, we, don't, we do hymns here, but we don't do a whole bunch of them, but we do a few. And um, I grew up in the Lutheran church, and, um, and we sang a lot of hymns, which was great. I love our worship today, but there are some beautiful hymns out there. Um, there's a hymn called, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Maybe you grew up singing that. Maybe not. Um, by William Cowper. It goes like this. 
there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and a sinner plunged beneath that flood will lose all their guilty stains. That's what people used to sing about the blood and and rejoice in what the blood did for them. It took away their stain, their guilty stain. I I really appreciated last week when Nathan spoke. um, You know, I had a moment of envy and jealousy back there when I was listening to him. That's sin. Obviously, I repented from it. But um, he gave this example about uh, this white carpet and this red juice being spilled on it. I thought, what a picture. And that you can't get it out, but we could cover it up. And that's what a thousand years of sacrifices were doing. It was just covering it. But he said, but we know it's still there. There's this conscious. We have a guilty conscious. We know it's there. But see, what the writer of the, the hymn here is saying is that there's a fountain filled with blood. And when we submerse ourselves in that blood, that stain and guilty stain is no more. It is cleansed. It is white as snow. So he goes on here and he says, since we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he, who does the opening, he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Now the author is talking about this new and living way. We don't need to spend a lot of time here. It's pretty basic. The new way, this word new in the Greek means fresh or recent the recent covenant, the thing that, that has just happened. Jesus has died. He's, it's this new way, right? Not the old covenant any longer. There's something new. And so that's what he's saying. And then he says, and living way. What's he saying there? Well, the old way was one of death. Thousands upon thousands of animals died every year. They estimate there was well over a million or maybe two million people. Every family was bringing an animal at times. For Every day there was sacrifices. And the Day of Atonement there were sacrifices. But all year long there were sacrifices. And, and when we were at the tabernacle on Friday night and looking at the tabernacle and the, the huge altar that was out there and, and, the, script, and the size was based on Scripture and, and, and talking about all the blood that was dumped before it, and it would have been an incredible bloody mess. And that's the cost of our sin. I, I, the weight of this, just, just like we need to really let that settle in. Like, but, but things were dying, and it was, it was death. It wasn't living. It was a covering, but everything was dying. And what the author is, is no, now there's something that's new, that's living. We have a perfect high priest that's going to shed his blood, and while he will die, he will not remain dead. He is a living sacrifice. And notice in, 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 I think it's in Ephesians, where he says, Paul says that we're a living, we want to be a living sacrifice. Like that's, that's true for us. We should die, we should give our life away and be a living sacrifice. Obviously our blood, our death doesn't do anything, it doesn't heal anybody, but that modeling of what Christ has done is shown there in the scripture. Not through dead animals, but through the blood of a living high priest. It goes on there and says, and what does that do for us? What does that new and living thing do? It opened up for us the curtain. That is, through his flesh. Okay, the curtain. What's he saying here? Now he's comparing these things. He's, he's kind of blending them together. He says, because in the, in the holy place, in the tabernacle there, there was a curtain that separated the two rooms. And one of the curtains is the big curtain that they, no one ever went behind, except for the, the high priest once a year. No one could go through there. 
Because to go through there, you were in the presence of God. That's, that's, that's what he was teaching them. And you can't come before the presence of God as a sinful person unless you do all these ritual things and the high priest had to do it just right and God made an allowance for them to come in once a year to make an atonement for the people. And so it says that he opened through the curtain, that is his flesh. So somehow he's making this tie that we're going to go through the curtain, but the curtain is his flesh. The thing that we're going to pass through now is him. Yes, we're going to go behind the curtain, we're going to pass through the curtain, but, but he is kind of that curtain that we're going to pass through. So where do, we, where do we start to see this, though, about the curtain? If you look at the Gospels and you go to the end of the Gospels and you see where he was crucified, and here we pick it up in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. It says, and behold, the curtain, now there wasn't, the tabernacle wasn't here now, it was the temple, right? They built the temple, still the same Holy of Holies and, and the Holy Place and the Ark of the Covenant, all was there. And behold, the curtain of the temple, he's talking about the curtain that separates the two, keeps us out of the Holy of Holies, was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks split. So when Jesus was crucified, a miraculous thing happens. The curtain in the temple that separates us from the living God is ripped in two, signifying that now we have access to God. Through Christ. So, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this as you read Scripture. Now, I'm not, I'm not directly saying that these are references to these things, but I, I think they're worth considering. In John chapter 10, the Gospel of John, Jesus is talking about the sheep and the shepherd and how he is the great shepherd. And it says many times he sits in the gate. The shepherd sits in the gate to protect the sheep. So notice you can't pass through unless you go through the shepherd. But notice what Jesus specifically says. He says, I am the door of the sheep. He goes on there and says, and you can't enter unless you go through me. Okay? I think it's tying back to this whole picture of the tabernacle, that he is the curtain. John 14, 6, passage we read frequently. Jesus said to him, talking to Thomas, I am the way. This idea that I am the way, the, the way something happens. I'm, I'm, it, this is the idea that he is the living sacrifice. He's the way in to the presence of God. It's going to be through him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Through the curtain, through me. So here we're, we're talking about the same thing. All the way back here, when the writer of Hebrews is talking, he says, we enter through his flesh. It, it's... So when, when it says here, I am the way, the truth, and life, no one else except for through me, we could say we're really through, we have access to God through the work of Christ, the atonement of Christ. See, it's not just through Jesus in, in that sense. He, if he doesn't die and make the atonement and shed his blood, then we can't go through him. He has to shed his blood, and that's why the blood is so important. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All right, verse 21. It says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, so now he's, he's kind of concluding his, his argument here and, and just saying here's why his summation, right? Since we have, he's, now once again he's just saying because we have this and because he's over the house of God, what's he mean? He's over all of believers. He's over the house of God. We are the house of God. We are the believers. He's over the church. 
since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, and then he goes on and says, let us draw near. And so, but now before we start that, now we're to the place he's summed up. He says, all these things have happened, and so we need to have a confidence. We need to do these things. And, and here's why, because he's made it, it's a new and living thing. He's made it possible. He's, he's, we now can access God through him. And because of all of that, because now we can do that, he's going to exhort us in three things. He's going to exhort believers in three things. That's what is this idea of exhortation? Is this idea that we strongly urge or persuade? We see this a lot in the book of Acts when Paul is doing his missionary work and he goes to synagogues and it says he, pers- he, he persuades them. He, he basically reasons with them. He's, he's trying to show them the truth. Here's what the author's been doing for, for 10 chapters. He's been persuading. He's been trying to get them to understand. But here, he's very, being very practical. He's now saying, okay, I've been talking about what you should believe, and now I'm going to talk to you about what you should do practically. If all of this is true, then this is how you should live. If living for Christ requires a confidence, I've told you that this is why you should have confidence, and now here's how you need to live. And so what's the first thing he exhorts us? He exhorts us to draw near to God. We are exhorted to draw near to God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This idea of drawing near. Now, I don't know that we kind of really feel the, the challenge to that statement because if you're, if you're here in the first century, and, and, and the writer here is saying, no, we need to draw near to God. That goes against everything that they've been told. No, we are not to draw near to God. God will kill us if we draw near to him. That goes all the way back to Mount Sinai where God says, don't even touch the mountain. Don't, don't bring your people forward. They will die. Don't let your animals come forward. They will die. Don't let people touch the tent. They will die. Don't let anybody come in behind the curtain. They will die. And now all of a sudden, the author is saying, God is encouraging us to draw near. These guys are saying, no, no, uh, I ain't doing that, right? Ain't no way I'm drawing near. You don't know what you're talking about. I ain't drawing near. This idea, though, in the, in the old covenant, right, they were, they were tentative and fearful of drawing near. They, they didn't want to draw near. They'd been told not to. In the new covenant, though, the author now tells us that we should be confident and we should be joyous to draw near, that God the creator of all things is asking us to come forward and be in a relationship with him. What a switch. Because he's been teaching them that they're sinful and he's been teaching them they need a sacrifice and he couldn't have that relationship until they understood the need for a savior. In the Old Testament, we need to keep our distance. In the New Testament, we draw near. So what do we see here? I would ask you, are, are you drawing near? Are, are you, are you pr- in your prayer life, are you drawing near? Are you coming before the face of the Lord in, in your prayer life? Are you being transparent? He's going to build on this. Are, are, you, are you in the word? Because that's, an, that's really one of the main ways we draw near. We read his word. It is, is the living word. We're, we're, we're looking at the face and the beauty of God and we're reading it and it, it's becoming part of who we are. We're, we're there speaking to him face to face. He goes on there and says, with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With a true heart. So he says, I want you to draw near, but I want you to draw near with a caveat. You, you have to have a, a pure heart. 
right? A pure heart, a true heart. What does that mean? It means that we need to have a genuineness. We don't come before the, the Father in, a, in, a, in an apathetic way or in a, or in a prideful way or a, a hidden way. We can't hide how we're feeling or, or what's going on. We, we come pure. We, there's no alternative motive. We're not coming to get something. We're not coming to manipulate God. And, and don't we sometimes want to do that in our prayer life? We, we want to promise something to God and say, if you do this, then I'll do that. And God says, no, I want you to come with a pure heart, a genuine heart, a true heart, in full assurance of faith, a confidence. Why? Because if we're coming with a pure heart and we know that Jesus, who he says he is and what he's done, and it purifies me and I'm going to put all my trust in him, I can come in a full assurance of faith. Once again, I go back to that pin. When I hooked on, I had a full assurance that that pin was going to hold me. That's what he's saying. Do you have that assurance? When you approach God in your prayer life, in the the text of Scripture, do you have a full assurance of your faith? Do you have a full assurance that he is good and that he is working in your life, that he has saved you by causing you to be born again, he's made a way for you? Do you have that full assurance? And Because that's really what the author is saying. That's what God wants you to have. Not if you're living sinfully, not if you're living for yourself. He's saying, but if you will live and you will be obedient, not perfect. He's not asking for perfection here. He's saying, no, but have a genuine heart. If you sin, confess it. Bring your sin into light, John chapter 3. Don't hide in the dark. Confess your sins one to another. Reconcile with one another. Have a sincere heart. Look at David, right? King David. He kills a woman, or excuse me, he kills her husband, has the woman, gets her pregnant, has sex with her, and then kills her husband. And yet God says, David's a man after my own heart. (laughs) How is that? Because in Psalm 51, David lays his heart out. He's genuine. He says, Father, I realize that I've sinned. I've sinned against you. My sin is always before me. Please forgive me. He has a pure and genuine heart. So sin is is not the issue necessarily. Christ has died for the sin. It's, It's the condition of our heart that he wants. The whole Sermon on the Mount is about that. I've said it many times. Jesus is looking at the condition of our heart. He goes on there and says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. So he's tying some things together here. He's, he's referring to the sprinkling on the altar, the blood, right? And then it, it gives us a clean conscience. Now, not, not the blood of animals gives us a clean conscience, but the perfect blood of the perfect high priest gives us a clean conscience. So he's tying that together. We go back to, once again to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 14. He's starting the tabernacle here again, and he says, I think he's speaking to Moses, and he's telling Moses to tell Aaron what to do. He says, and he, I think he's referring to Aaron here, shall take some blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger in front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So he's, he's, now he's tying that. He says, this is... this." This was sprinkled on the mercy seat for your forgiveness, but now this this perfect blood of Christ is going to be sprinkled on your heart. And it's going to purify your heart. Christ is going to change your heart. He's going to, as Ezekiel said, he's going to give you a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. He's going to make you a new creation, it says in the New Testament. Right? He's going to cause you to be born again. There's this new thing that is happening. And it caught, the sprinkling in our heart changes our desires. It changes our whole attitude towards things. We are changed from the inside out. And when that happens, 
the benefit, we get a clear conscience. I talked about that a couple weeks ago. We get a clear conscience because God has fixed the stain underneath the rug. We don't need the rug anymore. The rug had its purpose. It's not necessary anymore. We have Christ. We are hidden in him. We are made pure and righteous through him. Hebrews chapter 9 Verse 14, there's lots of places we could go here in Hebrews that kind of remind us of this, but I picked 9.14. It says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So there it is. It's this idea that he's purifying us inwardly in our heart. What, what, what's needed in, in the church and what's needed in, in the hearts of people is to have the right heart, not to have right works, Right works will come with a right heart. We need a pure heart before the Lord. He finishes up verse 22 by saying, our bodies washed with pure water. Our bodies washed with pure water. Now some would argue that this is baptism. I think if you study the text, and I would encourage you to do so, I don't think he's referring to baptism here. Because baptism is not about being washed of our sins. It's, it's about dying and it's symbolic of death, but it's not about being washed of the external sins of our life. It, it doesn't clean us that way. It's representative of the thing that's happened inwardly and that we have died, and that is what gives us a cleanliness. So I want to take you once again back to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 4. Once again, Moses is telling Aaron, he says, he shall put on a holy, he's talking about the priest now, that's going to go in for the, to the sacrifice. He's speaking to, you're going to say Aaron needs to do this. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. Then he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. So he's just saying, this is what he's going to wear. The, the, it had to be white. It had this idea of purity underneath him before he put the rest of the, the priestly garments on. But then what does it say? He shall bathe his body in water and then put it on. So he's doing something symbolically to show that he is going to be clean before he goes before the Lord. Okay? But I will take you into the New Testament and I want to challenge you to think through it this way. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is talking about how God cleanses his church. Pick it up, Hebrews chapter, or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. All right, so God is, is talking about husbands and how we should love our wives. We should die we should, because Christ died for his bride, the church, and he gave himself up for her. Why? That he, Jesus, might sanctify her, the church. That's us. Right? So how does he do that? Right? He's, he's died for us. He's given himself up for us to sanctify us, to make us pure, right? to cleanse us. We've been made right by the sacrifice, made righteous, but he still wants us to, to live right before him, to live a holy life. How does he do that? Having cleansed her, that was the church, that's you and I ultimately, by the washing of water with the word. See, the way that we end up and live rightly is we know the Word of God and it transforms us inwardly. And so the water is what washes us and changes us. It sanctifies us. 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, once again us, by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything, that she might be holy and without blemish. So he's exhorting us to draw near. And these are the things that have to happen for us to draw near. We have to have a true heart with full assurance. Our hearts have to be sprinkled with the blood. Our heart has to be transformed by the work of the cross. We need to be washed by the word to be sanctified. Second exhortation. He exhorts us to hold fast to our confession of hope. Right? Our confession. Right? What's this idea of confession? What we believe, what we state, we say, we believe. Right? This is my confession. This is what I hold to. Let's pick it up in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. This idea of what I believe, I shouldn't move from. In the Greek here, this idea of without wavering is this picture of something that's exactly perfectly perpendicular to the ground. And it will not move. It does not sway to the left or to the right. It will not move. The picture here is one of, we see it in, in um, when, when actually Kyle spoke a few weeks ago about the armor of God. The, the idea is that he has these shoes, that he's, he's unmovable. He will not move. Now, he's, he's been given many other gifts. He's given the shield of faith, the, the helmet of salvation, the belt buckle of truth, the, the breastplate of righteousness, all of that, the sword of the Spirit, but he will not move. One of the things that God is always asking of his people is to stand firm. Because if we have a confidence in Christ, we should be unmovable. And one of the problems is is the church has been moving with the the culture. You can see it now in many denominations. The church has moved with the culture. It is no longer standing perpendicular to the ground. It is no longer saying, no, we're not moving, Lord, because we trust you in your word. No, we don't. That's not what the Bible says. No, we're not going to do that. Surely people don't want us to preach about that. No, let's not do this, right? That that doesn't seem loving. We want that to be loving, so we can't do that. No, that's not not at all what God had asked us to do. He says to stand firm. Hold fast to your confession. Hold fast. And your confession is one of hope. You, 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 the reason you hold fast to it because you know the hope is in that confession. The hope is in eternal life. The hope is in being forgiven. It's all of that, being washed clean. That's the hope, and that's why we hold fast. Because there is no other thing that's going to do that for us. Nothing. That's what he's just been explaining for ten chapters. That's it. I won't read the... Well, I'll read it quickly. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Here, some of the Jews in, in what Paul is writing to the, the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, they're, they're waffling. They're saying, no, I've heard the gospel, but I want to I go back. You still need to be a Jew. You still need to get crucified or circumcised. And, and they're waffling. They're not holding fast to their confession that they have in Christ. And what does Paul say? This is very serious. Paul says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. One gospel, 
One way, one way of holding to the truth. Do not move. Be loving, be gracious, but do not wander. Do not waver. So he exhorts us to hold fast to our confession. I would ask you, are you holding fast to your faith? Are you holding fast to the principles found in the gospel, the truths that we are rooted in? When people talk to you at work or in your family, are you bending? Be loving. Don't cause dissension. Don't, don't, I mean, not on purpose. Don't Be loving, be gracious, but do not waver. You say, well, I need to, I need to, I can't say those things. I, I got I to gotta, I gotta capitulate because I, I want these people to be my friend. I want to be in the group. No, no. And that's why, God, you're going to see here what this, the ex- exhortation number three is so important. Let's look at it. Number three, the writer of Hebrews exhorts us to stir one another up to love and good works. So what's he saying here? Well, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, basically that's the text. And let us consider, it's an important word there, how to stir one another up to love and good works. So what's he saying? He says, look, I don't want you to waver. I want you to draw Neil. I don't want you to waver of your profession of hope. And because of that, I want to put you in a body with people, and you're going to encourage one another, and you're going to help each other hold firm and not waver. There's going to be people that are going to be like-minded, believing the same thing. People that are going to have the Spirit of God living in them. When you come together, you're going to remind each other this incredible hope that we have in Christ, and it will help you not to waver. And so he says here, let us consider. Why do we need to consider? It's like, do we need to? No, what he's saying here is not like, should we do it or not? He's saying, let us consider how to do it. The question is not whether we should do it or not here in the author. He's saying, no, we need to consider how we're going to do it. We need to God has given us a brain, folks, and wisdom that we apply the Scripture, we apply the knowledge and the gifts that he's given us for a purpose. And so he's saying, look, consider all the ways that you can do this. It's not whether you should or not. Consider it and figure it out and do it. Be about my work. Be about my business, about doing it. You do that at your home. You know that you need to raise your children. You know that you need to protect them. And so you think hard about how to do it and what boundaries to put it. And whether they can have this cell phone or whether they should have texting ability or whether you should be on Snapchat or they should be on Snapchat. All of those things. You're thinking. You're not saying, well, I'm I'm considering whether I should watch over my children. No, you're considering how you're going to watch over your children. This is what the author's saying. He says, we're not considering whether whether we should stir up one another to love and good works. We're saying, how should we do it? And so the author is saying, you need to think hard about this. You need to put a lot of emphasis in this and do this. This is is not a game here. This is eternity in mind here. The glory of God. We need to live for him. So that's what he begins to say is let us consider. Okay, what are we considering? How to stir one another up. How to do that. We stir people up all the time. We stir people up in student ministry. We're constantly stirring their hearts and challenging them with Scripture and exhorting God and Christ, and and we're stirring them up. We're challenging them. We're admonishing them. We're encouraging them. We're doing it in children's ministry. We just spent a week of VBS, you know, doing that. We're stirring up the kids for the gospel and for Jesus and, and getting them to think about beautiful eternal things and about the beauty of Christ and we do it in here and the preaching of the word and the singing of the songs and and the worship we have. We do it in Bible studies and life groups and D groups. We're stirring one another up. But I want to bring it even farther down to that. You can say, boy, I I don't know how to do that. Showing up stirs people up. 
because this is what we're going to see right after this. Stirring up just requires showing up. You say, well, how does that work? Now, I'm not saying you should stop there. I'm saying that's the entry point. But if you think, well, I can't do it. No, you just show up. You will stir people up. Every Sunday morning when I come through that door generally into the worship area, and I've been by myself back there. I'm preparing you know, the rest of my, my notes, and I come through the door, and I see 100 people in here. I am stirred. The Holy Spirit begins to stir in me. Your attendance means something to me. You are, you are here because you love the Lord. You're here because you want to proclaim him as king and savior. You want to exalt him and glorify him, and that stirs me. That encourages me. I hope that my attendance at some level encourages you. And I will say, uh, every, every week, Brian and I, or, 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 or whoever is preaching, whoever is singing, we're trying to stir your hearts. In the music that we sing, we're trying to stir your hearts. We're trying to stir whether the reading of the word, the preaching of the gospel. So everything is to stir. And, and I know, sometimes I stir kind of hard. And I'm, I, I apologize if sometimes it's, it's not as loving as it should be. But God has commanded us to stir each other up. And to do that, we have to be together, right? And so, but it goes on there, it says, to stir one another up for what? For love and good works. I stir you up to love one another. I encourage you to love one another. Yeah, but you don't know that. Oh, I'm telling you, you need to love that person. You need to reconcile with that person. You need to, you need to do this right. And sometimes that is hard, and, and many of us don't want to do it. And, but we're here to stir it up and admonish one another sometimes. Say, no, but that's what we're to stir each other up for love and good works. This word good works. If you remember a couple weeks ago, I, I talked about that the, at the end when you know, death will come and everybody's been appointed once to die and then the judgment will come. And I said that even believers will be judged at the mercy seat of Christ. And, and what he's saying there is he says, look, we'll be judged on the works that we've done. Not, not on the sin that's been taken care of, but on the works that we've done, whether good or bad. And this idea that we're going to be judged on works. And so what the author here is saying is spur one another to good works. Spur them to, to be involved in the kingdom, to be involved in ministry, to, to spur one another, not to, not to works that are dead works. So don't spur each other on for, for things that are not eternal. Don't, don't, don't be spurring each other on for those things. We have an influence. And then he goes on there, he says, not neglecting to meet together. See, because we can't stir one another up if we ain't together. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So we meet together. I think specifically he is talking about the Lord's Day here, but some people debate that. Maybe it's, I would argue that it could be every gathering that we have, every life group, every time we get together as believers. But specifically, I think he is talking about the Lord's Day. Not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day dawning near. What's the day? The day of his return. It's coming. I can tell you that we are closer today than we were yesterday. I don't know if it'll be tomorrow or if it'll be 100 years from now. I think that Jesus tells us that we need to look at the tree and look at the weather symbolically, and you'll know that it's the season. I would argue that we are in that season. I would definitely argue that we're in that season. But my timeline is not his timeline. So let's look at this day. Romans chapter 2, verse 16. On that day, Paul says, when according to my gospel, 
So this gospel that he's preaching, it's not his in the sense it's the gospel he's preaching. God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. See, on that day, all the secrets will be revealed. Everything in your heart will be revealed. God will know them all. If you've not trusted in Christ, there'll be judgment and eternal wrath. If you have trusted in Christ, there'll be a a mercy seat judgment. You'll be forgiven. You'll be rewarded based on the good works that you've done on that day. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. A little bit more ominous. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter's being very clear there. But I want to draw your attention to the first part. It says, but that day the Lord will come like a thief. You may be sitting here and saying, well, I've got time. I don't see it today. This has got to happen yet in in prophecy or this, that, and the other. No, I think what the Lord is saying is the Lord is going to come, and you're not going to know when it's going to happen, and you need to be ready. He's going to come like a thief. So do not be waiting. Do not be thinking, I have tomorrow. That's the whole point of the gospel the message. And first of all, we should want to live for him, not to hold out, not to say, well, I want to live my life fully and at the last minute I want to get across the finish line. That is not loving what Christ has done. That's not understanding the the resurrection, the crucifixion. That's not understanding the whole whole emphasis of the, the tabernacle and all that's happened. One commentator kind of puts it like this as far as not being in fellowship. The New Testament lends no support to the idea of lone Christians. Close and regular fellowship with other believers is not just a nice idea, but an absolute necessity for the encouragement of Christian values. So that's why I stirred y'all up a few weeks ago about saying, well, if you're not coming to church on Sunday because you're always out doing something else, I don't think that that's a good work that I want to stir you to. I'm not saying you can't take vacation. I'm not saying you can't be sick. That's not my point. Don't go there. I'm saying that your desire should want to be to gather with the church, especially on the Lord's Day. It should be a priority in your life. And so the question I have for you as we come to a close here is, is your confidence in Christ? I started out by saying that if we're going to live for Christ, we have to have the confidence in Christ. Is your confidence in Christ? If I sat down with you today and said, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Would your confidence be in Christ? Would you say, yes. And I would say, why? And you'd say, because what Christ has done for me. And I've staked my whole life on, on his work, and I love him, and I, I just want to honor him. I want to stir you up to that. The whole ministry of the church and proclaiming his name is, is wanting to stir you up to those things and to that level of confidence. Not, now if you're in, because we want to stir you up because I don't want you to be apathetic. I don't want you to be lazy in your walk, in your reading, in your ministry, in your reaching out. And so maybe this morning you're here and you're saying, well, I don't know that I've been born again. I, I, I'm not there. And so my next step for you would be examine where your hope is at. Okay. Your hope is not in Christ yet. I I can appreciate that. I understand that my hope was not in Christ at one time either. Where is your hope at? Is your hope in in X party winning the the midterms here? (laughs) Is it in 
the presidency? Is it in somebody getting to be president or, 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 or certain people in Congress getting to take over? Is it, is it policy changes? Is it that the world is going to be made right? Is that we're, gonna, we're all going to, there's going to be peace in the world someday? No, is your hope in that? Is your hope in coming to church but just as an outward sign? Is, it, is, it, is your hope in money? Is your hope in your, your retirement account? Where's your hope at? Because I will tell you, everything Scripture teaches, all that will be burned away. And so I just want you to examine where your hope is at. And I would ask that you would put your confidence in Christ. Next step for those of us that are believers. Will you commit to stirring up one another? Will you commit to stirring up? Will you consider all the ways to do it? Not consider whether you will do it or not. Will you consider all the ways that you can do it? And then will you be about doing it? Right now, you weren't able to be here for the first service, so you won't see the actual baptism, but I want to show you a testimony of a young man who I will tell you, I want you to think about what he says and think about what we've just talked about here in the text. And I will tell you that I have not talked to this young man. I didn't speak to this man. We didn't coordinate anything. There was nothing choreographed with his, his testimony, nothing like that, but it fits like a glove with what I think we've just said. So I want you to hear how he, what he's trusted in, how he's drawn near to God, what he's put his, his confession in, how his, where his hope is at, how he has stirred up, how people have stirred him, and how he desires to stir other people up. His name's Caleb Vi. Let's watch this real quick. Hello, my name is Caleb Vi, and this is my story. So I didn't really have a life separated from the church. Um, I've been in the church since I was a baby. Um, been hopping around church to church until we came here about fifth grade. So um, that's when I met everyone here, met Tim as a teacher. Um, he really influenced me. Um, love the atmosphere here. He pushed me in my relationship to um, strive to learn more, to understand what it meant to be a Christian. When, I'm trying to remember, I think it was seventh grade. We were coming home from a trip, some, I think, like from school or from like a store run, and I was just in the car. We were listening to Caleb, and it was only my mom and I. And, um, I basically looked over at her and said, how do I accept Jesus? <laughs> we both kind of um, broke into tears. She helped me say the prayer, and then I um, basically from that moment forward understood what it meant that he died for me. And from that moment forward, I wanted to live my life for him. So after um, that conversation I had with my mom, I was getting into youth past the elementary level. And all throughout the years, I was influenced by teachers like Hunter Fustel, Andy Early, Eric Gearhart, and Bobby Nemeth. 
and um, they pushed me, challenged me in what it meant to be a Christian, how to respond to um, people who didn't believe in Christianity, and how to defend my stance uh, as a born-again believer. And it made me realize that I want to serve too. I want to do the same thing for children. So that's what I've done. After dabbling in the youth band while being a part of youth, I decided I want to come back as a teacher and teach. Now that I'm in college, I go to Cedarville University, and the knowledge that they teach me about Old Testament theory and New Testament, as well as how to study the Bible, I figured that knowledge could be passed down to um, generations younger than me, especially like getting to teach in the same group that my younger brother is in. I want to be held accountable. I want everyone to know that Jesus has claimed me and that I should act in a way that befits that. I should act in a way to show that I follow him and to show that his love has influenced my life. couldn't have written that better. Everything that we've talked about today was just demonstrated in that young man's life, Caleb. He drew near through the blood of Christ. He drew near through his profession of his faith when he surrendered his life. I believe he had a true heart before the Lord. I believe his heart has been sprinkled and has removed his sinful conscience and then he had the opportunity to get baptized this morning in there he says he was exhorted to hold to his confession by other people in his life to hold fast to the hope that he has in Christ this is probably what I loved the most about his testimony he shared how other people, his mother and his family and his teachers, the men in his life, had stirred him, right? Stirred him up for love and good works. And he goes, and he wants to stir other people up. So he's going to go to a school to learn more about the Lord, to be rooted deeper, to understand the beautiful depths of Scripture so that he can come and work with kids to stir them up, to love and good I don't know what more we can say than that. That's the, that's the picture of what God is asking for us. I don't know where Caleb will, be, Caleb will be in five years, 10 years, 20 years, but I will tell you this as we close with this passage. Hebrews chapter three, verse 14. It says, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. So what am I saying that for? Because we are here to come alongside Caleb as he has come alongside others to stir him up to hold fast to the end. 
We will share in Christ when we cross the finish line, folks. Do not give up now. Do not, do not waver. Endure. Persevere. Support one another. Encourage one another. Until God takes you home or until he comes back. And that's why he's put us together. And that's why it's so important to not neglect meeting together. You say, but I got, I don't care. Then you need to make room in your life. You need, you need to make room for this. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. May you leave here today committed to stir one another up. Let's pray. Father, today as we close out the service, I'm so grateful that you've placed us in a body, in a family. Yes, Lord, I know there are challenges when you put a bunch of sinful people together. We have different ideas, we have different personalities, we have different thoughts. But Lord, I believe that you're using those things to sanctify us, to cause us to be gracious, to cause us to love one another in spite of who we are. Father, I thank you that that you've given us this beautiful example, these exhortations, first of all, that you've invited us to draw near to you. What a gift that is, Lord. For a thousand years or longer, you told us not to draw near. We live in a time where you're calling us to draw near. And not only to draw near, but to have a confidence, a full assurance of faith that we should draw near. So, Father, we praise you for that. You tell us to hold fast to the confession of the hope that you've given us. Father, I know that that it is you that has placed your spirit in us and that holds us. But for our part, Father, help us to continue to hold fast to that confession. The hope that we have in Christ. And then, Father, help us to stir one another up to love and good works. I pray today has been just that. That every day we gather, we will do that. But Lord, help us to consider all the ways we can do it, not just here on Sunday morning, but in our walk, in our life with you, as we walk and disciple others. I pray that you will continue to to guide Caleb in his journey with you and, and that we will come alongside him as he comes alongside us and we will walk this journey together and that we will share in it when we cross that finish line someday as we've remained faithful to you. Help us not to waver in a world so desperately that needs to know that what we believe is firm and solid and true. Help us not to waver. You are the hope of the world. Help us to reflect and honor you in how we live our life so that many will come to you and bring you glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at Have a blessed day.